everyone. Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm Carrie Gann, and today we're talking all about heart health. February, as you may know, is American Heart Month. It's a chance to focus on heart disease, which affects almost half of all American adults, according to the latest stats from the American Heart Association. A heart attack is probably not on your radar when you're still in your 30s. You might feel like you're in your prime, maybe with your career, family, or both. Tremaine Lee knows what that's like. He's an award-winning reporter with MSNBC, a husband, and a father. He was pretty healthy, a non-smoker and former athlete whose cholesterol levels were good, with no high blood pressure or diabetes, and no family history of heart disease. And yet, he had a heart attack at age 38. He had what's called a widowmaker blockage that almost completely shut down blood flow in one of his major coronary arteries, which supply the heart with blood. By the way, even though it's called a widowmaker, women can get this type of blockage too. At the hospital, doctors used stents, tiny devices, to reopen his blocked artery. They told him he was a lucky man. But along with the joy of surviving came the shadow of being so close to dying out of the blue. It's an emotional roller coaster many heart attack survivors go through. Tremaine Lee wrote about this recently in the New York Times, and he joins us today to talk about what happened the day that everything changed for him and how he's doing now. Tremaine, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Great. And we're so glad you're okay, by the way. Let's start with what happened that day. When did you notice the symptoms? So really, the symptoms began uh, a couple of days before I actually had the heart attack. It was a Monday, and I was here at 30 Rock, went down to get some coffee, uh, and I noticed a little tightness in my chest when I like kind of walked vigorously. So the first day, I just kind of chalked it up to, you know, maybe being a little out of shape, haven't been to the gym in a while, no big deal. Uh, the second day, you know, the, the pressure was a little bit more extreme, and I also felt a little lightheaded. So much so where it's like if I didn't stop, I was probably going to pass out. So I went to the health center, uh, you know, talked to the practitioner there. She chalked it up as just gas. And like basically said, take some Zantac, you'll be okay. And literally said, don't worry, you're not going to drop dead tomorrow. <laughs> wow. <Like> verbatim. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right. You know your body. Um, that's that's one of the big takeaways is to listen to your body. So I knew it was more than just gas, right? I knew that there was something else happening here. But I left there the next day, felt pretty good. Um, you know, I didn't have that same tightness, a little discomfort, but not much. And that night into the next morning, went to sleep. And, uh, you know, woke up minutes later just with extreme pressure and tightness in my chest, uh, cold sweats, nausea, um, a little disoriented. And that's when everything began to change. Wow. And, you know, some of those symptoms are not what you would think of, you know, the classic heart attack symptoms that everyone thinks of. That's the thing. I, mean, I think when you think about heart attacks, you think like an old episode of Sanford and Son, you're grabbing your heart, you know, I'm coming <laughs> to join you, right? You're doubled over, you're falling on the ground. And that wasn't it at all. I, in fact, it, it was never what I would consider a pain. It was just the most extreme, uncomfortable pressure that I've ever experienced. And I think that's part of it is that people don't necessarily know what to look for when they think of a heart attack. Definitely. And also, you had no obvious risk factors. Did the doctors tell you anything about why it might have happened? Yeah, so um, no high blood pressure, no high cholesterol, no family history. Uh, the doctors said essentially some uh, plaque in my uh, left anterior descending artery uh, chipped off and that um, a blood clot filled that space. Um, doctors are still trying to figure out what makes uh, the softer plaque especially more unstable, but it's just unclear what caused this. Uh, one of the cardiologists basically said that, you know, I hit the worst kind of lottery possible, and it was just kind of a... Uh, 
uh, freak thing that happened. And that's how uh, my body responded. Wow. And so what is the plan to help your heart going forward? Are you making lifestyle changes? Are you taking any medicines? Yeah, certainly. So while I can't change, you know, at all what happened moving forward, I've lost about 24, 25 pounds. Uh, I'm exercising more regularly. And again, this is coming from the mouth of a former athlete, um, high school and college. You know, I kind of let my exercise fall to the wayside, but I'm back at it. Um, eating as clean as possible um, most of the time, right? Cutting back on drinking, more exercise. I'm also on um, medication, aspirin, um, a blood thinner, and uh, a cholesterol medicine to make sure that I don't develop any more plaque on my veins as much as possible. But most of all, it's, it's the, the exercise and lifestyle. So even though I, I couldn't have done much to prevent the heart attack in the first place, uh, for myself at least, I have to give myself a fighting chance. You know, once you have one heart attack, you're more likely to have a second heart attack. And so for me, it's like taking charge every single day to get better and stronger and more focused on uh, doing what I can to live. Right. I think we take so much for granted, especially when it comes to our busy jobs and our families. But for me, moving forward, I have to be here. And to that point, you wrote about the emotions that came along with this experience. And obviously, it's it's no small thing to come so close to to death. That's what doctors told you. Tell us about what you've realized about that or how that's affected you. I, mean, I think there are, there are so many people among us um, who we pass every day, friends and family who have gone through traumatic episodes in their lives. And I don't think until you experience one yourself and you walk up to death, especially, do you realize there's a different kind of healing that needs to take place, right? The physical is kind of obvious. You got to get stronger. You got to get healthy. You have to be prepared in case something else happens. But it's the emotional part, um, especially wrestling with this idea of your own mortality that is probably tougher than even the health, uh, getting, getting physically healthy. You realize that when you come so close to death, it's hard to shake um, that thought that one, it might happen again, and two, that you'll be prepared in case it does happen, right? And your family members and your loved ones. So it took me a while until about maybe six months ago, and I'm a year and a half out from my heart attack, until about six months ago, there wasn't an hour of any single day of any single week or month that I didn't think about dying in death, right? Um, my family, my, my little daughter was six years old, and that was really tough. But fortunately, I was able to kind of confront it head on. I think before this, I, um, you know, in bouncing the stress of everything, I thought I did a good job of processing stress. But what I was really doing, I think, was compartmentalizing that stress. I wasn't actually filtering through it. And so now... I'm very intentional and conscious of when you have uh, stress, when I have those tough thoughts about what if, what if this, what if that, I process it and I'm actually finding ways to get rid of um, the most toxic part of that. And so moving forward, I try to talk to survivors when I can about what it's like to, to confront what happened to you head on and find healthy ways to manage that stress and those emotions, whether it's a mindfulness, uh, the intentionality around taking time to actually just be grateful and appreciative that we are here to survive. And that's what we're doing. So that was, it was a pretty tough journey, but uh, I'm a testament that harnessing positive energy and positive attitude and making positive changes in my actual day-to-day -day life has opened up the world in a way that um, early in the process of healing, I wasn't sure I would ever get to. That's probably something a lot of heart attack survivors can relate to. That's definitely not something they prepare you for. 
No, without without question. Now, when you when you know after you have a heart attack, um, you know your doctors and cardiologists will tell you that there are a lot of people who um, end up um, going through anxiety and depression. And I've never been prone to either, right? So I'm generally an upbeat person. But I found myself again wrestling with this idea of death. And after uh, the op-ed I wrote in the New York Times, and after um, the Today Show appearance that I made recently, I've been getting flooded with emails from survivors across the country who are still in the midst of wrestling with these ideas. Uh, one woman said that she believes her family thinks she's going crazy because she's been unable to find a really productive way to manage her trauma, right? And so it, it's, it's so tough and no one can prepare you for that, especially, um, or even I should say, even those who are well-meaning and who love you, or love you, right? The people around you, because they don't know what it's like to go through this necessarily. And they don't necessarily have the tools to kind of help fix you, right? So it's, it's a, a bigger problem than I think people recognize. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of literature out there. There's not a lot of resources aimed directly at those who survive, especially a cardiovascular event, and how you wrestle with the stress and trauma afterwards. It's really a big deal. It's a good thing to start talking about, for sure. That's right. What is your message for other people of any age, but especially those who think they are too young for a heart attack? You know, you're never too young for a heart attack. The way we live as Americans, with all the stress of getting our jobs and our families, uh, the way we eat, the processed foods, the cholesterol uh, that's handed down genetically. There's this misconception that it's an old man's disease, right? You think of an overweight, um, older gentleman suffering a heart attack. But studies have shown that um, increasingly younger people are being affected by heart attacks. And so I think the best thing to do is uh, learn the signs and symptoms early. Uh, because remember, heart disease is the number one killer in America. But also, you have to give yourself a fighting chance. It's, don't wait until tomorrow, right, to get healthy. Don't wait until New Year's to make a resolution. You can do it today, but it most certainly is not an old man's disease. I'm a testament to that. I, I do want to say one thing that I think is, is really important. For me, this is the big takeaway uh, moving forward is that so often when folks suffer a heart attack or any other kind of health-related trauma, you can see yourself as a victim, but truly we are survivors. And as I talk to folks from all across the country who are wrestling and dealing with how to overcome that black cloud of that near-death experience, you're a survivor, right? Let's take this head on. You survive for a reason. Uh, so, so often we take our life for granted. We take that next breath for granted. Uh, but we have to live in the moment and be present. And also that there is life after this. We don't have to be scared to exercise. You don't have to be scared to get out there and enjoy your life the way you did before. And I think that's a hurdle we don't talk enough about. Cardiac rehab is something that a lot of people go through after a heart attack, and it's often focused on the physical aspects of recovery. Would you like to see that expanded to include more of the you know, counseling or the mental health piece that you've been talking about? Without question. I mean, first of all, those who are wondering whether or not they should or should not go to cardiac rehab after a heart attack most certainly go, not only for the physical, but it also allows you to get back on your feet. You get on that treadmill and you start walking, then you're jogging, then you're running. You need that confidence, especially when you've been knocked off your feet by a heart attack. It's important as soon as possible to get back on your feet, to prove to yourself that your heart still works and that you're okay and that you can take every day to get stronger. It's a good message for all of us to remember on this uh, Heart Awareness Month. Tremaine Lee, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and, and good luck on the recovery journey from here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Your heart beats for you all day, every day. But how much do you really know about it? We put together this quiz to help you learn a little more. 
All right, let's get started. Question number one, what makes your heart beat? Is it A, electricity, B, pressure, or C, reflexes? Did you say A? That's the answer. A tiny bundle of cells called the sinoatrial node sends out an electrical signal from the top of your heart to the bottom. This kickstarts each beat and controls the rate and rhythm. Off to a great start. Let's do question two. About how many times does your heart beat in one minute? Is it A, 20 to 60, B, 60 to 100, or C, 100 to 140? Heart rates vary depending on your age, fitness, and if you're moving or at rest. But the normal resting rate for most people is 60 to 100 beats per minute. Moving right along, question number three. What makes that lub-dub sound of a heartbeat? Is it A, the heart valve snapping shut, B, your heart muscle hitting your ribs, or C, blood flowing into chambers? It's A. Heart valves are like doors. They open to let blood pass through to your heart, and they close to keep it from flowing the wrong way. The two sounds are the two valves, the mitral and aortic, closing as blood passes through your heart. Let's do question four. About how much blood does your heart pump in a minute? One and a half pints, one and a half quarts, or one and a half gallons? It's C, one and a half gallons. That's 2,000 gallons a day. It takes about 100,000 heartbeats to pump all that through your body. By the time you're 70, your heart will have beaten more than 2.5 billion times. Great job, everybody. Question number five. True or false, you need one straight hour of exercise every day to keep your heart healthy. That's false. Physical activity is key, but you don't have to carve out a solid daily hour to do it. Get at least 30 minutes of moderate activity, like gardening, walking, yoga, or a leisurely bike ride, at least five days a week. Or you can do at least 25 minutes of harder activity, like running, swimming, or basketball, on three days each week. You can break it up into 10 or 15 minutes here and there if that works better for you. Moving on to question number six. True or false, you should only eat fat-free foods to protect your heart. That is a myth. Fat-free was a big food trend a while back, but now we know it's best to choose fats that are better for your heart, like canola or olive oils, over those that clog your arteries. Foods labeled fat-free can still have lots of salt or sugar, and too much of those are bad for your heart. So make smart choices, go for a variety of foods, and keep fat in moderation. Time for question number seven. Even if you aren't a drinker, you should have some red wine every night. Is that true or false? You might have heard about studies that say red wine can lower your odds of getting heart disease. But if you don't drink already, your best bet is not to start. The benefits don't outweigh the negative health risks of alcohol, including high blood pressure, stroke, and obesity. If you do drink, keep it light. That's no more than two drinks a day for men and one for women. Up next, question eight. Your heart beats slower if you're A, a woman, B, a man, or C, a kid. It's B, a man. On average, women's hearts beat eight more times a minute than men's do. Your heart rate goes down with age, too. And kids' hearts are smaller and pump less blood per beat, so their rates are faster. 
All right, we're making great progress. Question number nine. True or false, your heart stops beating when a heart attack strikes. That's false. During a heart attack, your heart is almost always still beating, but the blood supply to it is blocked. As a result, it doesn't get enough oxygen, which can injure the heart. When your heart suddenly stops beating, it's called cardiac arrest. All right, we've made it. Last question. Jaw or back pain could be a sign of a heart attack. Yes or no? The answer is yes. Although the most common sign of a heart attack is chest pain or tightness, it isn't always one of the symptoms. Women are likely to have pain or discomfort in other parts of the body too, like the back or jaw. You might also feel like you can't catch your breath, sick to your stomach, lightheaded, clammy and sweaty, or tired for no reason. The more symptoms you have, the more likely it is that you're having a heart attack. If you think you are, call 911 right away. Now, many of us think of heart attacks or maybe the clogged arteries that can lead to one, but heart disease, which is also sometimes called cardiovascular disease, is a range of conditions that affect the heart and blood vessels, including stroke, high blood pressure, heart failure, and heart rhythm problems like atrial fibrillation. Heart disease is still the top cause of death for men and women in the U.S., now, for many people, heart disease runs in the family. Your risk also goes up as you age, but there are many things that make you more likely to get it. High cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, smoking, a lack of exercise, and an unhealthy diet, just to name a few. On the other hand, there are also many things you can do to keep your heart healthy. Scientists have gained a much greater understanding of the heart over the years, both what hurts it and what keeps it healthy. Joining us with his perspective on this is Dr. Todd Hurst. He's a board-certified cardiologist and director of the Center for Cardiovascular Health at Banner University Medicine Heart Institute. He also blogs about cardiology and heart health for WebMD. Hi, Dr. Hurst. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. One of the biggest pieces of recent heart news that I think really resonated with many people was about aspirin, which many people take trying to prevent heart attacks. Tell us about the research and why it was important. Well, you're right. Although many people believe that aspirin prevents heart attacks, this study is the latest of several in recent years that suggests that the benefits of taking aspirin for those who don't have heart disease may not outweigh the risks. So this was a large study, and they looked at aspirin use in middle-aged or older adults who are at moderate risk for heart disease to find out if it was beneficial. And what they found out was that aspirin did not decrease the risk of heart attacks or strokes or, or death, although it did increase the risk of bleeding. So what, what I think this means for patients is that unless you have heart disease or a history of stroke or mini stroke, also called TIAs, uh, or have had stents or bypass surgery, or if your doctor has told you to take aspirin, uh, the risk of taking aspirin to prevent heart disease may outweigh the benefits. And what I would recommend is that each person talk to their doctor about, you know, whether taking aspirin is right for them and whether the benefits outweigh those risks. So it's not just that anybody should try to prevent a heart attack by taking aspirin. It really does depend on who you are and, and what your heart health is. 
Yeah, it, it really is a complex uh, decision. Now, I, I should emphasize that if you have heart disease, if you've had stents or bypass surgery, you've had a heart attack or stroke, then unequivocally aspirin is of benefit in those situations if there's not a reason not to take it. A major risk factor for heart disease is high blood pressure, which affects millions of Americans. And there was some important news about the blood pressure readings that doctors take in the clinic. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think this is a really important area. You know, it's become clearer in recent years that only relying on the blood pressure taken in the doctor's office uh, it can lead to decisions that, that are misleading. And so uh, this was a very large study, over 63,000 people, and they looked at how well does blood pressures taken in the doctor's office as compared to blood pressures that are measured away from the office with an ambulatory monitor, how well did those two measures of blood pressure predict mortality or, or death rates? And what they found was that the blood pressures taken away from the clinic were strongly predictive of death rates, whereas the clinic blood pressures were just barely predictive of mortality. So I think what this means for patients is that relying only on the clinic blood pressures can lead to false assumptions. And if you have high blood pressure or you're concerned that you might have high blood pressure, there's an opportunity to help you and your physician make the best decisions for you by checking your blood pressures at home or other places away from the doctor's office. I, I'll end with the two most important things I tell my patients about checking their blood pressure at home is one, sit for five minutes before you take your blood pressure. It really can make a big difference in the numbers. And number two, bring your blood pressure monitor into the office and have it checked to make sure that it is accurate. Why is there such a large difference between the blood pressure readings that you might get in the doctor's office versus at home? What's going on there? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And, you know, there's a, a known clinical entity called white coat hypertension. And for whatever reason, whether it's anxiety or uh, other factors, blood pressures run higher in doctor's offices than they do in, in uh, outside of the doctor's office. In fact, uh, the best research suggests that about two-thirds of the blood pressures that we take in the doctor's office are not uh, collaborated by the, the measures that we take outside of the doctor's office. So it really does pay to uh, keep on top of your blood pressure at home, not just when you go in to see your doctor. Absolutely. High cholesterol is another of the big risk factors for heart disease, and many Americans take medication to treat that. There was news in this area recently as well. Yeah, so we had a publication of the second trial of a newer cholesterol-lowering medication that is called the PCSK9 antibodies that showed improved outcomes such as lower risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death. So when these medications are added to statins, statins have been the mainstay of treatment, treating, treatment to lower heart disease risk since about the 80s, uh, the patients on both of these medications did better, had better outcomes than if they were just taking the statin. So. What this means for patients is that we now have another medication of proven benefit in lowering heart disease risk. Now, the best candidates for these new medications, which are alirocumab or evolocumab, Repatha and Proluent are the trade names, are that those with 
heart disease or with really high LDL cholesterol that's greater than 190 and either they can't take a statin because of side effects or even if they can't take the statin but their LDL cholesterol is higher than we want it to be, generally thought to be greater than 70, that they would get additional benefit from the PCSK9 antibodies. So these medications are quite promising. They lower cholesterol levels pretty dramatically, about 60%, with few side effects in the trials to date. Uh, the biggest issue has been cost. Uh, originally, they were about $14,000 a year, uh, although they are reported to be much less uh, in the near future. Uh, but because of this cost, getting insurance companies to pay for them has been a real challenge. But hopefully with lower price and more data showing benefit, we'll have another effective treatment that can improve the health of our patients. And are these medicines that just the regular everyday person who has high cholesterol should ask their doctor about? Or would you need to, would your doctor be more likely to recommend it specifically for you? No, absolutely not. So they're not generally uh, for the uh, patients that just need to lower their cholesterol. The mainstay is still statin medications. Statins are remarkably inexpensive. All of them are generic except for one. And we have decades of data showing their benefits. So that still is where we start with lowering cholesterol. But these medications are for particularly high risk patients that either cannot take a statin or even on the statin, their cholesterol levels are still too high. It's good to have another option for those patients. Um, Absolutely. And finally, let's do a little bit of myth busting for the people who are listening. What are three myths that you find many of your patients believe about heart health? So, yeah, a common myth that I uh, hear from my patients is that they might feel that if they were at high risk for heart disease, they would know it. When the truth is that many of the risk factors for heart disease don't lead to symptoms. For example, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, even diabetes can uh, not cause symptoms. So even though you feel okay, there still may be important opportunities to prevent problems in the future. I would recommend that everyone see their doctor to make sure that they have a good understanding of their risk for heart disease. So another myth I uh, have in my patients, particularly those who have a family history of heart disease, is that if they have that family history, they are destined to have heart disease themselves. But the truth is that family history, while it's an important risk factor, there are many other risk factors. And even if you have that family history, you still have a great opportunity to markedly lower your risk with the right lifestyle choices, and in some cases, the right medications. And then the last myth that I'll uh, talk about is the one that patients believe that taking the right medicines or supplements is the key to preventing heart disease. Uh, but the truth is that while certain medications are important, particularly blood pressure medications if you have high blood pressure or statins if you are at high risk for heart disease, Often the most important factors in staying healthy are your lifestyle choices. So not smoking, eating good quality food, being physically, physically active, these are often the most important factors in avoiding heart disease and not just taking the supposedly magic pill. Many people often wonder, um, can you reverse heart disease once you have it, um, whether it's through medicine or lifestyle? Is, is there a way to do that? 
Yeah, so it's a really great question and one that I commonly get from my patients also. So it depends on what, how we define heart disease. One way would be that we've imaged, done some imaging study and we've seen heart disease, whether it's blockages in arteries or thickening of the walls of the arteries. And we have really good evidence that we can reverse heart disease or reverse those blockages. Now, I, I think, though, that it's important to point out that while that uh, reversal can occur, it is it is a small amount. You know, it's statistically significant in big populations of people, but actually demonstrating that reversal can be challenging in an individual patient. But what I think is most important, and an even a better question than can we reverse the heart disease is, can we lower the risk of future heart attack, strokes, and death? And that unequivocally we can do. So we know exactly what prevents heart disease. The best evidence is around what the American Heart Association has called Life Simple 7. So seven simple things that can prevent up to 80% of heart disease. And most of those things are common sense things that we all know. Eat a healthy diet, stay physically active, uh, good cholesterol numbers, blood pressure numbers, blood sugar numbers, have a normal body weight, and, and avoid avoiding smoking. Doing those seven things can be incredibly effective in preventing heart disease. Some good news and good tips to help your heart this month. Dr. Hurst, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Time for our Tweak of the Week. Look for the AEDs. That's short for Automated External Defibrillators. These devices can save lives if someone has sudden cardiac arrest, which can be deadly in minutes without help. AEDs are in many public places, including some offices, schools, gyms, and arenas. Each state has its own rules about exactly where they're required to be, but a lot of people don't know where they are. Half the people in one survey said they didn't know where the AED was in their workplace. And experts estimate that there are 10,000 sudden cardiac arrests in workplaces every year. Now, keep in mind, anyone can use an AED to get someone's heart pumping normally again after cardiac arrest, even if you have little to no medical training. Every second counts, so use the AED right away. Turn it on and follow the instructions that are with it, and get someone else to call 911. Here's how it works. The AED checks the heart and sends an electrical shock to restart the normal heartbeat. And don't worry, the AED is smart enough to only deliver a shock if it's needed, so you can't hurt someone by accident. Today, just take the first step so you're ready. Notice where the AEDs are in your life. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next time.